Happy Monday, Liberty Kitty Cats. And before we get into today's flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, I've got to tell you about another podcast you should be listening to. And that is The Brian Nichols Show. Brian Nichols is a great guy. I've been on his show. He's been on this show. And who is this show for, you may ask? Well, this is for folks who are tired of partisan politics, people who are having trouble finding objective news without the media narrative, for those of you looking to take the next step and truly learn how to sell liberty from an expert sales professional. Brian has had so many amazing guests over the years. He's had Justin Amash, who, of course, has been on this program. Thomas Massey, who I have not had on. I'll have to remedy that soon. He's also had great liberty names like Matt Kibbe, Jason Stapleton, Larry Sharp, and of course, yours truly, Mark Clare, has been on that program as well. And there is no better time to be hopping on board The Brian Nichols Show than right now because he has just expanded to two shows per week. So take his five-episode challenge. You'll listen to five episodes. If you're not hooked, you get your money back. So check it on out wherever you find podcasts or over at briannicholsshow.com. My guest today is the vice chairman of the San Diego Libertarian Party. He is also a history teacher. He is also an adjunct professor of U.S. history, and he is the author of the book, The American Revolution. I'm very pleased to welcome Don D'Angelo. Don, are you ready to roar? Wow, that was a that was quite a roar. <laughs> Thank you. I, I credit Mel Blank for that. He taught taught me how to do that. Did he personally teach you? Did you know about Mel Blank? No, he was he did this thing on TV where he's like, "Hey, kids, you want to learn how to?" You know, <laughs> it sounded like a, a lion that maybe also swallowed um, swallowed a frog. <laughs> <laughs> but not bad. You're, you might not want to quit the day job just yet, but not bad. No. No. <laughs> well, Don, it's great to speak to you. Uh, I already uh, we we met each other uh, back first at the uh, the Los Angeles. No, it wasn't Los Angeles. It was the state yeah, retirement party in the, yeah. that took place in Los Angeles uh, back in February, just before I think we were were one of the last physical conventions before everything uh, went crazy with COVID and locked downs and everything basically went to to zoom meetings including the uh the first iteration i guess of the lnc which was a uh, which was uh, a <laughs> quite a time as as you know uh but don first before i get into i want to talk about your book i want to talk a little bit about your experience of what you've been doing with the libertarian party but first i want to get to know you a little bit better so why don't you just lead us down the tale of don d'angelo just a little bit why did you first of all become a teacher how did you get involved in that and how did you get down this rabbit hole known as libertarian politics <laughs> well, um, I, I was actually, I'm, I'm from the East Coast originally. I was raised in Western New York State. And then um, I ended up at the University of Delaware. Where in Western New York, um, by the way? Um, it's a small town just next to Olean, New York. Okay. I don't know if you've ever heard of that area. Beautiful countryside. Yeah, I, I know it. I, I actually was raised in Buffalo until I was uh, eight years old. Oh. So I, I am I am familiar. Oh, so you, you escaped. I did. Good I did. <laughs> I escaped New York for California, and now I'm trying to figure out how to escape California. So it's, it's, a, it's yeah. a cycle isn't of life. That, isn't that frightening, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I ended up at the University of Delaware. I studied international relations there. And uh, when I left, uh, actually, Joe Biden spoke at my graduation, believe it or not. <laughs> and um, and he inspired you to get into po involved in politics. Yeah, yeah, he did. Well, you know, that was 1987. So that was the year the year he had to drop out of the race because they caught him cheating. Uh -huh. And now, so, now here um, he is. Almost 30, 30 and now here later. he is. And uh, I ended up in Connecticut teaching high school because I thought it would be a good transition thing. 
Don, I feel like our lives are parallel. Now I got to ask where in Connecticut, because that's where I went to high school, high school as well. Oh, I, I was in uh, Stanford, Stanford, Connecticut. Okay. I was at uh, Stanford Catholic High gotcha. School for a couple of years. Um, and then I ended up with uh, Chase Manhattan Bank. I ended up going into corporate America. And that's how I got to San Diego. I was uh, working in La Jolla. And then I got my first master's degree there in international relations at uh, University of San Diego. And then got laid off from corporate America. So I decided to go back to teaching and um, went back into the classroom in 1996 here in San Diego, teaching AP U.S. history. And then I, be, um, I was named a senior fellow of the James Madison uh, Fellowship Foundation in uh, 2007 and got a second master's degree in uh, history. And that's where the rabbit hole started. Um, the James Madison Foundation takes their scholars, they, they choose 60 around the country every year, and they take you to Washington, D.C. for the summer. You, you go to Georgetown University and they bring five leading scholars around the country to come and, and, and teach you. Uh, over four weeks, you read 11 books and write four research papers and um, discuss the Constitution. And that was the first time I read the Anti-Federalist Papers. And that's when I started to realize that something wasn't right. Which are sneakily named, uh, as you know. Yes. The, there's a little, uh, the, the Anti-Federalists and the Federalist Papers kind of have opposite meanings uh, of what they seem to be. But I'll let you describe yes. that a little bit if, if you like. Yeah, well, you know, it was really very interesting because um, as a teacher, I, I recognized immediately uh, the Anti-Federalists are not part of the curriculum. <laughs> and... Uh, it's really eye-opening when you start to realize what's not taught to children. And um, I, read, I read most of them. Uh, I actually read the Federalist Papers and the Anti-Federalist Papers, and I started to realize that um, a lot of the problems that the country faces were actually articulated in the Anti-Federalist Papers. There, there are actually, I mean, when you read them now, they're, they're downright, prophetic and what they warned Americans not to do. And so I, I kind of came out of that experience very changed. And I started looking for an alternative. I, I, was, an, I was a registered nonpartisan from the age of 18 until I was 29. And the only reason why I registered as a Republican is be, quite literally, I had moved to California. I didn't know anyone. And um, I heard a speech by Bill Clinton, who was running for president. And I said, oh, no, 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 that's that's not that. No. And so I registered as a Republican because I wanted to give uh, George H.W. Bush support in the primaries. He was being challenged, even though he was the sitting president, um, by uh, James Buchanan and some other uh wackos in the in the republican Pat Buchanan. party i think james, I think james <laughs> came a little bit earlier <laughs> Pat buchanan and it was like um so i joined i joined the republicans so that i could vote for him in in the, in the primaries and so i just stayed there and but when george w bush decided to go into iraq it, i couldn't get the you know what i mean i couldn't get my philosophy connected with the republican can message anymore. I was just, you know, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. 
my 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 breaking point was around around a similar point where I when I started to come into the ideas, I actually started learning them from Ron Paul around the time that George Bush was uh, president. Uh, but what struck me about what Ron Paul was talking about is that he spent most of his time, even though he was a Republican, criticizing George Bush, criticizing all the actions right. he was taking overseas and at home. And that's what really made me realize, OK, there's something wrong with this left right paradigm uh, where most people most of the time they never criticize each other. But for some reason, this guy is he's always going after the Republicans. He's always going after his own party. And that made me look at things a little bit differently and, you know, go down a similar rabbit hole that you went down. Well, oh, yeah, absolutely. Look, you know, when uh, Newt Gingrich led his revolution in 1994 and had the, the you know, contract with America, I was on board with pretty much everything in there, um, you know, balancing budgets and cutting taxes and lowering government regulation. Those were all things that I had, you know, I was like, yeah, let's do some of that. And the reality was uh, when, when Bill Clinton left office, it all stopped. And, and it seems like the contract with America was actually a contract on Bill Clinton. And, you know, once he was gone, the Republicans seemed to have lost their their tether. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, I, I just that that invasion of Iraq was just the last straw for me. I couldn't reconcile it with what I knew to be good sound. For, I mean, my original field was international relations. I was, you know, studying my first master's degree because at the time I was thinking about being a global risk management uh, advisor for Chase Manhattan Bank. And so I, you know, everything about it just didn't make any sense. And I, I just thought, no, this is, this is when America starts to become an empire for real. And it, it's, this is not what our founding fathers intended for us. And it's got to stop. Going back into that history and going back to the Anti-Federalist Papers, what were the concerns of the some of the founders who wrote the Anti-Federalist Papers? What were they concerned about when it came uh, primarily to the formation of the Constitution uh, and the federal government? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's always important. It's, it's actually one of the first parts of, of the book I write because, again, these aren't things that are talked about in history class. And the fact of the matter is, the moment, the moment, the Constitutional Convention decided they had to scrap the Articles of Confederation and literally create a new government out of nothing. There were members of the Founding Fathers who said, hold on, we do not have a mandate from the people to do this. We, we do not have permission of the sovereign, right, to uh, recreate this government. And so when they lost that vote, some people like Patrick Henry, for instance, left. He was like, I want nothing to do with this. This, you know, um, but others uh, were, were basically trying to articulate to the convention and then later through these articles that the more you centralize authority, the more you are asking for tyranny. And, and the problem is and, you know, I always think people forget this, right? At the time of the convention, there were only 13 states. And yet, everybody knew that the country was going to double in size. Because on the west side of the Appalachians was almost a million acres of land that they were going to sell and organize. So they knew this, this country was going to get enormous, and so the anti-federalists were there to be like, look, you don't want a centralized authority that's going to be quite literally physically distant from you because you will lose your ability to hold them accountable 
because even your representatives that you send there will, in a sense, kind of like go native and start articulating the demands within that centralized authority rather than really voicing the needs of their constituents. And look at what we've got now, right? Somebody gets elected a couple of times and before you know it, they're part of the problem. And that's why you have so many people demanding on term limits on Congress because they just feel like they elect somebody, they go there for you know two to four years, and before you know it, they're just a fundraising, you know, pro-government uh, shill. And you know, and the other the other part was, and this is actually pretty interesting. There's a letter, an article by Brutus. So they both wrote under pseudonyms, and uh, this one was under the pseudonym of Brutus, and. In his, I believe it's his article eight, he talks about how, you know, uh, the necessary and proper clause, which is at the end of article one, section eight. So, you know, that article lists all the powers that only the federal government can do. And there's about 18 clauses there. And at the bottom of it, it says, well, to do these things, the federal government should have all necessary and proper power to execute those responsibilities. The Anti-Federalist said that clause is going to allow the government to expand its authority and it will get so large that it will, it will run out of money. And what they're going to do is they're going to start borrowing. <laughs> and, they're going to, and, it, and there's a phrase in there where he says, uh, they shall increase the debt to a level that will render it unsinkable, meaning you won't be able to pay it off. <laughs> Sounds fairly prophetic, considering that uh, we are rapidly, rapidly approaching $30 trillion in debt, especially after the latest rounds of uh, stimulus and coronavirus package, and more that we know is going to come in the coming months. There's no doubt they're going to do this again. Before you know it, we're going to be at $30 trillion. And if you break it down, it, we're already at the point where it's, it's, it's essentially un, unsinkable, as you might say. Well, and you've got a Democratic Party that's promising a Green New Deal. That's probably another $10 trillion. And some in the Democratic Party are talking about slave reparations, which is billed at $14 trillion. Um, at some point, you become Greece because your, your monthly um, interest payments are actually greater than your revenue. And then what do you do? Uh, right now, there are countries big enough to bail out Greece Who's big enough to bail us out? Right. China? <laughs> Just keep printing that money, I guess, right? That should work out. That's exactly it's worked right. out so far, sort of. That's right. And so we now have this modern monetary theory going on, and both parties are buying into it, as far as I can see. Trump, Trump's arguing, if you listen to what he says, what he's saying is interest rates are so low that our economic growth will be greater than the principal, or excuse me, but greater than the interest we'll have to pay on this debt. Well, that's, that's horrible thinking, right? And, and then you have the Democrats who are like, well, you could just continue to print money because the value of the economy will be great enough that you can justify printing more cash. What happened? <laughs> you know, I mean, even, even the father of the debt, right? Alexander Hamilton was, is rolling in his grave over what we're doing with debt. I've, I've actually had liberal friends of mine tell me, well, you know, Alexander Hamilton, he's one of the greatest, you know, founding fathers and framers of the Constitution. And, and he gave us this idea of bonds. He said it would be a blessing to the nation. And I'm like, yeah, because then he knew he had a million acres that he was going to sell. He, he knew he had one million acres of pristine, beautiful farmland. 
that he was going to sell in the open market and literally surrender that debt. So he didn't think he was just going to print money and, and go on some wild tirade. He knew that there was a purpose. There was equity behind his debt. He knew it was backed by something, whether or not the uh, debate all day long, whether or not the acquisition of that land was just or what have you probably wasn't, but it was based on something that was physical and something that was real as opposed to now where they just create it and create it and create it. Right. And, you know, and then, you know, when we, when we borrowed again to buy the Louisiana territory, that was almost 2 million acres of land. You know what I mean? So every time the country took on debt, it did it with this understanding that there was, like you said, there was equity, there was something tangible backing it up. We're not doing that now. We're, we're borrowing money for things. This is now a credit card that we're running around and buying crap for each other. And, and, and I don't even know why it, it's, and it's a credit card where we get to set our own uh, spending limit and, and constantly raise it. Yeah. Yeah. But here's something that I actually bring up in my presentations that I do um, on, on the book. And, and that is when, uh, so when the new constitution was implemented, the United States and the various States together owed $75.5 million. And that's in 1700s money. It's a lot of, a lot of smackers in 2020. Right? That's a, that's a lot of cash. That a lot of that money was owed to French banks and to some Spanish and Dutch financiers. And <clears throat> there was a practice back then. If a country didn't pay back its debt, they sent their Navy and they, they, they had their Marines take over your ports and they collected your taxes and paid themselves first and gave you what was ever left over. So in Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, and this is what's very important for people that, they're, again, not taught, Article 6 obligates the federal government to honor its debts at all times. Whoops. <laughs> yeah. Now, this is why, by the way, American bonds are so sought after. It's a safe investment because you will at least get your monthly interest. Right. You'll get the numbers. They will come to you. It's just that, a matter of what those numbers will actually mean by the time you get them. That's exactly right. And so a lot of people have bought our debt because it's, it's, we're obligated to pay it. But what happens when that obligation is costing us 25, 30% of our budget? You know, people out there complaining right now that there's not enough social services coming out of the government. What do you think is going to happen to those social services when 30% of your, of your money is simply going to keep the creditors at bay? You know, you're, you're really in trouble. I mean, what is Social Security going to look like to people when 30 years from now, when the currency has been devalued so, so much, but they're still getting that same exact number payment, just like the bonds that they were scheduled to get anyway. And it's, it's going to buy them, what, two loaves of bread if they're lucky. Exactly right. And so what happens is we are actually mortgaging our future in the hopes of creating just a slightly more comfortable present. And that is the absolute opposite attitude of the founding fathers and the framers of the constitution. They were meticulously concerned that what they did had future implications for people that they had no idea because they weren't even born yet. Um, you know, they envisioned a nation of, they called it an empire of republics, plural. 
And that was because even Federalists like Madison at the time, Madison wrote that he believed that you couldn't have a republic much larger than New York or, or Massachusetts. Why? Because if it gets too big, it's going to collapse because history told him large republics fail. And so you have to keep them small and keep them empowered. And that's why you have this balance in the Constitution, of the original Constitution. I want to go back to talking about the the formation of that original constitution. This is a uh, something that is, it's been revered for so long, uh, especially by Republicans, uh, constitutional conservatives. But um, as you discussed in many ways, I don't know if you would use this term, but others have used the term. Would you call the creation of that constitution a coup? No. Okay. Why not? Because others would. Michael Malice loves to call it a coup because. Yeah, no. And the, the only reason why I don't is because some members of the Constitutional Convention were also members of the Continental Congress. And when there was a decision to scrap the articles and move on to a different document, those members went back to the Continental Congress, discussed it, and literally got their blessing to go forward. The other aspect of it that really becomes important is the, this issue of ratification. So... Not only they write the document, but then they literally sent it back to the people of the states, not the state governments. It went back to the people of the states for ratification. And if those two steps hadn't been made, I would 100% be on board with that was a coup and we need to, you know, right the wrong. My biggest concern right now is that um, we're not following the Constitution. We're, we're not even close to following what the Constitution was set up to do. And... Um, while I would at this point be more than happy to go back to the Articles of Confederation because um, I think that it would operate a lot better given the diversity and, and expansiveness of the country. Uh, you know, my feeling is I I'd be more than happy to compromise and just let's all sit down and realize what the Constitution says and let's just go with that and try that for a while. <laughs> Hey, kitty cats, I got to take a quick time out now to tell you about one of our listeners, one of our patrons over at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. His name is Brad Tracy, and he goes by the pseudonym The Liberty Theorist. You can find his writings over at his blog at medium.com slash at Liberty Theorist, where he discusses all the shady things the government has been up to and why libertarianism and individual rights are the only viable path towards keeping that much power out of the hands of government. He considers himself a Rothbardian, and he's a big fan of criminal justice and prison reform, just like you hear about each and every week on Felony Friday. So next time you're out there browsing the interwebs, when you've got through all your podcasts, I want to encourage you to give a little browse over to the Liberty Theorist. Again, that's medium.com slash at Liberty Theorist. You can also find him on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Liberty Theorist. Check it out, kids. So your, your dive into history uh, is really what kind of got you interested in the structure of the government uh, and the ideas behind the politics and, and what led you down this entire, you know, get, getting involved in politics yourself. I'm curious how you, what, what made you take that leap from just um, sort of having this be something that you learned about yourself uh, and having 
it be something that you teach. I don't know how much, uh, I'm sure it's a fine line you have to walk uh, when it comes to teaching history and sort of introducing your own views. How do you kind of walk that line? Do you, I'm sure you're not just coming out giving, you know, libertarians, you know, creeds all day long in your classroom, but at the same time, I'm sure your viewpoint somehow has to sneak its way in there a little bit. Well, and this is all based on people's educational philosophy, first of all. Um, When you teach American government, this is just my personal feeling. Um, At some point, you have to, you're going to reveal your point of view. And what you have to do constantly is remind students that all points of view are valid as long as there's logic behind them. That's the key. As long as there's logic behind them, because uh, there often is not. There's some that aren't. But, you know, um, so here's how this works. And this is what I've been encouraging other teachers, particularly in the social sciences. Virtually all of the textbooks in the social science field are written by Marxists. That's just, that's just a fact, because they're coming out of the universities of this country, and virtually all of them are Marxists. And the ones who aren't Marxists aren't getting published. So um, you are, in a sense, handing your children Marxist dogma. And paying a lot, and paying, ironically paying a, paying a hefty, uh, quote-unquote, market right. rate to do and so. And so what I always tell my students is, That's what this book is. This book comes from a Marxist worldview. Here's what that means. And I, when I talk, I'm going to give the opposing view to that, which I call the enlightenment worldview. And I go over what that means. And then I tell students, I go, your obligation as a student of history is to sort through all of those facts apply that worldview to the facts and determine which one of those speaks best for you. So your approach is not, this is what I believe and therefore you should believe it. It is, here is this point of view. Here's how this side is presenting it. Now here's my point of view and I'm telling you it's my point of view. I'm not just pretending it's the truth and the facts, although I'm sure you hope that they they come to similar conclusions, but that's the whole point. You want them to come to those conclusions, not just say, my my teacher, Mr. D'Angelo said this, so therefore that's the way it is. And I have a large number of kids who, who walk away who are, you know, pretty, pretty much Marxists. And we're still friends. I mean, I have hundreds of former students who are friends on Facebook and many of them don't agree with me at all. Um, but I'm, I, I'd like to think that because of the way I handled the classroom, that they have grown to understand that people can have varying opinions and still be cordial and loving of each other and appreciate each other and, and not, you know, come to blows over it. And, um, now, I have, be- I have a, a, a real blessing, right? I teach at a Catholic institution, so I don't have to follow the California curriculum. Ah, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a big one. That probably that's helps you out a lot. That's right. It really does. Because I don't have to worry about a uh, you know, state supervisor or a, a, a department chair that's going to come in and say, no, you're not following the prescribed curriculum. Um, I... I you know, and the thing was, when I was teaching AP U.S. History, this is actually pretty funny. I taught AP U.S. History for 20 years. The national pass rate was somewhere between 55 and 60 percent. And mine was between 90 and 100 percent. And um, I would go to these conferences and these poor teachers, these public school teachers, would be out there following the curriculum to the letter, Right and just hammering all of these 
quasi-Marxist perspectives on history. And I just didn't do it. It was just, to me, it was a waste of time. I simply taught my kids to think critically and write well. And guess what? They outscored the national average by just huge numbers. Why am I not surprised? And um, why, right? You know, think, be a good thinker, be deep in your literacy and articulate yourself properly. That's what we should be doing for kids in education, not indoctrinating them, not trying to make them into mini-me's, but to simply say to them, look, there are more than one worldviews out there, and it's your job to be as educated as you can and to make an educated choice and then be consistent in that choice, right? And, and your, your approach to education and, and teaching in general is so different than I think what most of us, and I, I say most of us because everyone... I've encountered a couple great teachers who are amazing. So I don't want to act like there aren't great teachers out there who do right. teach oh, people not. to think critically. You're obviously one of them. Uh, they're out there, but they're the exceptions in the system. The system doesn't necessarily seem to encourage that type of teaching. The system seems to encourage, uh, you know, in indoctrinate, send the information into their brains, make sure they send it back out in the same way you sent it in. And now you have a good student. Whereas really right. to be, none of that, it sets people up to be successful in life. It sets people no. up to be widget makers, widget buyers, etc. not critical right. thinkers, not people who innovate, not people who take care of themselves and can think outside the box. That's right. And so for instance, my, I have a theory on this, which is one of the reasons why I've supported so uh, much the Joe Jorgensen campaign, because she wants to get rid of the federal department of education. So starting with George W. Bush with his No Child Left Behind, and then Obama with his all, all high school graduates must be college ready, these are a preposterous goals. And so what happens is you create this expectation that every single child, every child in America that turns 18 is ready to go to college. Well, now all your policies in education have to back that up. So guess what? I'm telling you right now, statistically, and this is statistically no matter who you're teaching and what the makeup of your classroom is, statistically, 50% of your kids are C's. So inherently, there's going to be about 10% who just aren't going to be ready. So in order to satisfy that goal and not be seen as a quote-unquote bad teacher, you pass kids by lowering expectations, by making things mechanical, check off the box, go through here. For the teacher, it's easy. Did you, correct, did you teach XYZ PDQ? Yes, I did. Check. Did uh, said student pass this class? Yes, they did. Check. Right? And now guess what you have? You have colleges and universities that are doing re, uh, remediation courses for their freshmen because they're allowing freshmen into the schools who literally cannot read and write at a college level and borrowing money to do it. It's horrible. That's bonkers. Well, and, and, and by the way, it plays really well into the psychology of so many parents today. My child is special. My child is wonderful. I have to worry about my child's feelings. I don't want them to feel rejected or, or struggle. I don't want them to, you know, feel consequences of bad choices. You know, everything's supposed to be wonderful, warm and fuzzy and bubble gum. And it's like, what are you preparing these children for? 
And as far as I'm concerned, this is why they're rampaging through the streets of the cities of America right now. I, I was just about to ask. I mean, I, I was picturing that myself. When you raise a child to always you know, get what they want, regardless of what they've done to earn it, regardless if they've done something correctly, uh, regardless of they've done things in the right way or a way that makes any sense at all, and you still give them the same reward as if they did do everything right, then at some point when they get to the real world and suddenly they realize that's not going to lead them to anything. Now they're unemployed. Uh, now they have nothing else to do but take those emotions, those emotions that they've been taught to just to have because that's how you get things. That's how you get what you want. And now they have nothing to do with them. Then you add on top of that the lockdown. So any of them that might have been working in some kind of a remedial job, most of them are out of work too. All you have left are literally a bunch of emotional toddlers, only they're they're grown-ups and they're in the streets and right. they're causing they're, a lot of people damage. who can actually have a gun. And, and, you know, this is, and, and, and I'm, I should say that I really do empathize with that, these younger people, because if you take into account the economic collapse of 2008 and the pandemic uh, panic of 2020, there are some 30 somethings out there who have never caught a break since they graduated college. And that's not cool. Right. I can totally empathize with that. The problem is we did not raise these people to handle it with the emotional maturity that we would expect an educated adult to do it. And all that's doing is it's creating so much unnecessary anxiety for them as adults because they were never given the mechanisms to handle it. And, you know, that so just to give you an example, when I was in when I started teaching in 1987, the vast majority of parents who would come to me would say to me, could you tell me what my kid's doing wrong? What's, what's my kid doing wrong that I need to be on top of? Now, the vast majority of my parents come to me and say, what is it that you can do to help my kid pass this class? And how, how is that? What are you as an educator supposed to say to that? I mean, I, I'm like, well, I could build a time machine and send him back to the fall and have him do his damn homework. How about we could start there? <laughs> sure. Or I could just look the other way and just write a different le le letter there and make you feel good mm -hmm. about everything. That's exactly right. And you know what happens? Way too many teachers today are looking the other way because it's not worth it. They're not going to be supported by their administrations. They're not going to be supported by the state. Their job is to push these kids through, get them a diploma, that way they don't get seen as being a bad teacher. They don't get seen being, as, as being sexist or racist or any of those other pejoratives. And they can just get through to retirement. And if they're a public school teacher, they're going to make as much, if not more, in retirement than they did as a teacher. As with any government program, the incentives are all wrong. Uh, you know, That's right. Teachers are not incentivized to actually create uh, independent, critical thinkers who are set up for success in the world. They're incentivized to just get them through the system. <laughs> that's that's yeah, where they and, get the reward. And California is getting worse because now the curriculum is actually more towards social, creating social justice warriors than it is about even making them thinkers. It's, it's like we're going to barrage you with all of this literature about evil, nasty people who have ruined your life. And, and basically get you all fired up and angry so that when you go to college and find out just how really disappointing life is when you have to make choices and live with the consequences, you're, you know, you're, you're basically going to just collapse and, and, and then we'll be there to pick you up and offer you all these great government programs to, um, you know, 
put you through your life. Well, it's worse than that, Don. It's not even just the educational system. Now it has seeped its way into the corporate world and the corporate system. And um, I know for a fact that certain companies out there are uh, requiring their employees to attend social justice seminars and yep. uh, that sort of thing as a part of their uh, the requirements of, of their, you know, their work duties now. So this is something that oh, has yeah. gone up from the education system and into the quote unquote real world. And it's scary. It's really scary to see it be, be pushed so pervasively where, so when, it's, when it's no longer uh, used to be, you don't talk about politics in the workplace, but now it's presumed that we're not talking about politics because this is the right, this is the obviously right point of view. So it's not even a political conversation now. It's just what you must believe. It's what you must agree to. You must sort of bend the knee uh, metaphorically or perhaps literally in some cases, or mm-hmm. you're out of the system. You're out of the education system. And now you're probably going to be out of corporate America if you speak out against anything. Thing that's, that's going through with this stuff. And, and you know what? It's, it's all policy based on fear. This is, if you study the McCarthy era, and I mean really study it, right? McCarthy never got this bad. It never got this bad under McCarthyism. It was never this pervasive. Now it is all encompassing. You cannot escape it. I have been in situations now where I have basically been told that as a white man, I am not adequate for teaching black, Hispanic, or females. You mean teaching people of, the, that, of those races and genders at all? People, yeah. That, so you can only teach right. white dudes. Because <laughs> that's right. And, and I got, I got um, chewed out on Facebook when I said, do you, do you realize that that's the mentality of segregation? That, that is segregationist ideology. It's basically saying we have to separate the schools again. And I'm trying to figure out when did that ever become okay? And, you know, from people in my generation where you fought like crazy to get rid of these types of distinctions, to, to really get to a point where you could, regardless of what person's background is, you could look past that and try to find the quality and the, and the connection that you can make with that person. To now find myself in an environment where, no, 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 your racial identity and your gender identity are far more important than that, is it just, um, it's, it, it's really super difficult. I, I wrote a piece that was published in the San Diego Union Tribune in the end of July, and it was called Choosing to be Loving. And it's because I started to realize that um, I, I, I was going to let myself become a very hateful person if I just allowed all of this to just engross me. And instead, I tried to turn my attention to all the things about my life that I really love. And I try to just put my focus there and realize that I can still love someone who doesn't want to love me, right? I can still love someone who's literally out there trying to destroy my career because they think that as a white man, I'm inherently a bad person after 28 years of teaching and multiple awards including the Urban League, which is a black, um, you know, um, a civil rights organization. But none of that matters now. And, you know, that's, that's hard for somebody that's committed so long uh, to teaching kids. And, you know, and, and by the way, as a, as a Catholic school teacher, I make anywhere from 5 to 20% below a public school teacher. And... I, I wanted to teach in this environment, A, because I'm, I'm a Christian, but also because 
I knew I would have that flexibility that I wouldn't have in a public school to teach what I want. And, and yet even still, you know, I've, you know, people who just, are, and it's, it's a really horrific thing. It is 1984 playing out for real. So that begs the question, Don, uh, and maybe that's part of why you wrote the book um, to try yes. to get these ideas out there to more people. I mean, I'm, I'm curious how, how long do you see yourself lasting in this profession and this being able to do what you do? I mean, it sounds like you're in a fairly good situation compared to, you know, someone who's just stuck in the public school systems at least. Uh, but even you are starting to feel like that, that pressure that you're not welcome. You're not someone who should be teaching our, our, our children just, just because of the color of your skin. Somewhat pretty, pretty ironically. Well, I'll tell you one thing I was at a, um, I, I, when I was trying to get a job in the community colleges, a very nice, um, it was, a, she was a dean uh, of, a, of a community college. And I was just trying to break in and I didn't know whether I had what it took to get one of those jobs and everything. And um, a friend of a friend arranged for her to just meet with me and look at my resume and, and talk to me because look, you know what, if I'm not getting where I want to go, I want to know what I'm doing wrong, right? I, I, I want somebody to, you know, put me down, tell me what it is, right? I had, at that point, I had sent out more than 150 resumes and got not a single response from my work. And mind you, I have two master's degrees. I only need one. And she was great. And, I, and, and she said, well, you know, and I said, well, I go, listen, you know, I gave you my resume. You've got everything up there. If there's something I'm not doing, could, just tell me, because you're not going to hurt my feelings. Just, you know, go and, and tell me what it is. And she, she literally said to me, you know, your resume is great. You have exactly the skills we need for community college students. And she goes, but to be quite frank with you, you don't have the, quote, demographic preferences that we need for hiring. She said, you'll get, a, you'll get an adjunct job because you have, you have what we need, but you will never, you will never get a full-time job, in, at least in California. That's a hard thing to do. It's amazing how blatant the racism can be when it's going towards the, uh, you know, the. Well, and I asked for it. I asked for her to be honest and to be and and to be perfectly clear. I I thanked her because at least at that point I could take the pressure off myself. I was literally beating myself up, thinking, "What am I doing wrong? Like, right. why am I so undesirable?" It's quite literally not you. That's right. And so I just gave up that dream. I gave up that dream of being a full-time college professor, even though for my temporary jobs that I've had, students have scored me five out of five for, you know, my level of presentation, for my, you know, caring for their welfare and all the other things that you would think would be the most important when picking a professor. But and that's okay, right? You, when you get to the point where you realize, it happened in college, by the way. I, was, I put myself through school. Um, I was in a pretty bad childhood and dropped out of college for a while and needed to go back. And um, I ran out of money and the University of Delaware was going to kick me out of school. And I went to the financial aid office and the guy, and I was almost in tears because I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And he got up and shut the door and he said, listen, he goes, I can't get you anything because you don't offer us anything. He goes, you're not a woman. You're not of any race. You're not of any quote unquote underrepresented group. He goes, I, he goes, the best I can do is sign you up for additional loans. And so that's what I did. Even though economically I met all the standards for the financial aid, 
being male and white meant that I couldn't get them. And I, I accepted it because back then I 100% believed in it. I, be, I still believe that there's a purpose behind affirmative action. I understand the historical realities to that. But it's not easy. And now I'm at the end of my working career. I turned, I turned 57 tomorrow. And Happy early birthday. I should, thank you. I'm supposed or to be- Or belated oh, birthday by the time the show airs. Either one. That's right. <laughs> but you know, the thing is, you know, I should be at a point in my career where, you know, I should be fairly comfortable and secure. Um, this summer, I had to come to the realization that just one word or one wrong thing could get me fired. Might be this podcast interview. That's right. And, and so um, I'm, on a, I'm actually on a partial sabbatical this year. I'm taking part-time. I'm helping out with a campaign. I was talking to you before we recorded that I'm um, hosting an event that Spike Cohen's going to come and speak at on the 29th of August in San Diego. And I've tried to do that. I went to the national convention. I went to the state convention. I went, I hosted the San Diego convention and trying to just do more because I got to tell you, this is it. As far as I'm concerned, this is literally the crossroads. This country needs to make a decision about where we are going to go. And I have convinced myself that pushing the red and the blue button, hoping for a different outcome, is literally the definition of insanity. We, we have been looking at these two parties, and, and as long as I've been an adult, Mark, I, I can honestly say it's really been a choice of who's the worst candidate, and then you vote against them. Right? I, I can only think of two people that I voted for, and that was Ronald Reagan, because at the time he was running against Walter Mondale, who was about as exciting as, you know, toothpaste. And the other one was George H.W. Bush in 1992, because I just felt that he had done such a great job at the Cold War that he deserved a second chance. But ever since then, I've been voting against someone instead of for someone. And that, I can't do that. You know, so starting with um, Bob Barr, I voted Libertarian because I don't want to vote against something. I want to vote my aspiration rather than my desperation. What, what a way to start with Bob Barr, though. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> you might have realized later, maybe I did vote for the same thing again, just with a different letter this time. But, but, but your intentions were good. That's right. And, and because, look, you know, the... And, and, um, I talk about this in the, in the text of the book, you know, third parties have played a very integral role historically to reforming the American political system. You know, the, uh, tonight, uh, tonight on August 20th, Joe Biden's giving his acceptance speech and he's going to lay out the quote unquote progressive agenda for America. Well, guess what? Every single one of those items was on the populist party platform in 1892, all of it. So there's not an original idea in the entire Democratic Party platform. They literally took it from a third party. The Republicans were actually started by two third parties, the Free Soil Party and the Liberty Party, anti-slave parties that started because neither the Democrats nor the Whigs would address slavery. And they wanted to force it to happen. And 
they joined with the Northern Whigs when the Whigs broke up and formed the Republican Party. So um, pretty much all of the major reforms that have happened politically came from third parties. So the premise here is until enough Americans demonstrate their willingness to abandon the two parties, they are going to continue to take the voters for granted. And they're going to abuse their trust because they assume they will always get it. So until people literally, and I mean millions, it's got to be millions and millions of Americans who go out there, right? Joe Jorgensen getting 20% of the vote. I realize a lot of libertarians go, oh, that's awful. Why would blah, blah, blah. But if she got 20% of the vote this year, it won't matter who wins. They're going to have to look over their shoulder and pay attention to what we're talking about. Well, 20, 20% would be massive. That would be, would be huge. Un- right? Do you think that's actually possible? I think it's possible if she gets on the debate stage. I'm going to play the role of skeptic on, on that. Yeah, one. If she gets on the debate stage, I think it's possible because there's that many disgruntled voters. And that's the biggest if, and it's the it's almost a certainty she will, she will not, because as you know, the Republican and Democratic parties, co they, they collectively control who gets in those debates. So the idea that she that they would allow her in is almost preposterous. But uh, I mean, I'm with you. I'd love to see it. Yeah. And you know what's going to happen? I think that what I think really could happen is that they get canceled altogether. Uh, because, um, you know, the Democrats seem to be yeah, it, it seems that way hinting at it. And the media seem to be supporting that idea. Um, and they do not want Joe Biden no, up there on a debate. Stage. No, especially I'm sure Trump would love to debate, but I, I don't think they have any interest in putting Biden no. up there against him. Uh, Biden is not good off the cuff. He will literally say something wrong. He's and, not good on the cuff. No, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't matter what side of the cuff he's on. I mean, he'll disaster be disaster either way. I mean, say what we will, will about Trump. He can he can act and talk on the fly. Right. No problem. And, and you know, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump because having grown up in New York and li- I actually lived in New York City twice. And so I grew up knowing Donald Trump and I was never impressed with him as a person. So but the one thing that is so unbelievable is this what it can only be explained as a, a Trump phobia that has gone into this hysterical mode as if these Democrats in the media never knew who Donald Trump was. And now all of a sudden they're just finding out, you know, in the last four years uh, that he's an ass. And, and it's like, they don't understand that that's what those people voted for. They wanted a jerk to come in and destroy things. And, you know, it's not how I would want to do it, but, and they just keep trying to convince these people, no, you don't understand. Trump's a jerk. Don't you understand Trump's a jerk? And people are like going, yeah, he is. Yeah. Exposing Donald Trump's personality as, as if it's some kind of expose is the most hilarious thing to me, as if people didn't know who this guy was, as, as if he hasn't been in the public eye for 30 years, as if they didn't know he was going to be saying absurd things and attacking people. They knew that. That's why they voted That's for right. him. <laughs> My, here's, a, here's the truth. My mother has voted Democrat her entire life. We used to get in these little fights because I'd say, hey, mom, who are you voting for? And she'd say, well, who has a D after their name? And I'd be like, no, you can't, right? We get in these little fights. So in 2016, she left the presidential one blank because she hated Hillary Clinton, but she didn't like Donald Trump. Well, guess what? My mom's voting for Donald Trump in 2020. My mom, who never 
voted for a Republican in her entire life is voting for Donald Trump in 2020. If that doesn't tell you what's going on, I just don't know what else you can say. But, the, but what's, that's a problem for libertarians too, however, because if we don't offer pragmatic solutions, and this has been the problem with libertarians for a really long time, we love to get into these philosophical debates. And we love to quote Bastiat and, you know, uh, you know, von Mises and, you know, just dazzle people with our unbelievable interest in interesting conversations about Austrian economics and, you know, Ayn Rand narratives. And you know what? People just don't give a shit about that. They want to know how their bills are going to get paid. They want to know how they're going to, uh, how their retirement's going to pay for things or how their kids are going to get through school. So the reason I wrote the book was to say, you know what, there are pragmatic solutions with libertarian ideology. And I tried very specifically to not get into the philosophical weeds with it. Not because people aren't intellectual. It's not because people are, you know, not interested in those philosophical conversations. It's because right now this country's in bad shape and people are literally trying to figure out how to survive this. Right? I have a friend that I work with who husbands a a, a policeman and this family with two little with two or th little children are literally living in fear because their home address was published by BLM that's scary that's scary stuff and and they they you know how this is frightening and if we don't offer America a really practical option then i'm i'm really afraid that we're close to you know civil war in the united states and that's why a lot of people myself perhaps included are are considering hightailing it out of here but but, but we'll see there's a i have three options i have i have three scenarios i'm working on <laughs> and that's one of them huh that's well I mean, the first one is to try to get people to understand that there is an option. We don't have to give up. This country is a beautiful place. And if the federal government just gave up a lot of its power and allowed local communities to govern themselves, well, then people would feel more satisfaction and they wouldn't have to go out into the streets, right? They would feel more ownership, right? They would have more status and agency in their own government, in their own country. We offer that. Right? I personally don't care if San Francisco County wants to run like a socialist commune. I really don't care as long as they pay for it and the people vote for it. But everybody should have the option to live in the system that they feel meets their need of life, liberty, and, and, and property. Well, Don, it's been awesome having you on and having you, uh, you know, shoot the shit, I guess, on some of this stuff, on some of the aspects <laughs> of history that, uh, that people might not be really familiar with. And, you know, about it's really interesting to hear the firsthand account, you know, of an actual teacher that's seeing this stuff happen in real time. Uh, I do want to make sure you plug the book a little more before you go. Yeah. So let people know uh, just, you know, what exactly they're going to take from this book, uh, The American Revolution. And uh, of course, feel free to plug away for anybody that might be listening in the uh, San Diego or San Diego yeah. adjacent area, how they can reach out to you and get more involved in the uh, Libertarian Party down yeah. there. No, thank you very much. So the book is called The American Revolution. It's R-E capitalized volution because instead of having an actual revolution, we just need to go back to the principles that were in the original one and it will heal a lot of problems. And uh, it's available on barnesandnoblepress.com. And, Noble Press .com. and uh, you actually have to type my, that 
you have to type it exactly that way with the capital R and E and then have my name, Don D'Angelo, afterwards. Otherwise, you'll get all these books on the American Revolution uh, that are written by Marxists. <laughs> and so, um, and then um, I wrote, so the book is really going through, there's an introduction that goes through some of the history. And then I, I pull out a couple of examples. So Social Security, how to fix that, how to fix uh, America's immigration policy, environmental policy, and, and things like that. Um, and I, I, I'll admit, I self-published because I've been working on it for over five years. And uh, the, the hostilities in 2019 just really made me say, okay, I got to put this out there because it's gotta, I've got to try. And um, so it's a small book uh, because I wanted it to be a quick read. And it doesn't answer all the questions, but it's just to say, hey, listen, there's a different voice. There's a different option. And here's some ideas that you could do pretty easily to change things in a very big way. Um, and so, <clears throat> you know, I, I want that to go out there and, and just offer people an option. And then um, if people wanted to get a hold of me, they can contact me at uh, vice chair at sdlp.org, especially if you're in the, in the, in the San Diego area. Uh, we really want people to get involved here. And um, I've been an officer for about four years now. So, uh, you know, we've really been trying to expand our presence. There are, there are over 19,000 registered libertarians in San Diego County, but only 100 of them are dues-paying members of the party. And that really limits what we can do to get more awareness and more uh, publicity and get more attention paid to us. And so um, we have an event coming up on the 29th of August. Uh, Spike Cohen will be here to give a speech. Hopefully we'll have some other speakers there as well. And um, so, you know, get in touch and let's find out what we can do. I, I want to try, and I'm actually a very hopeful person. I believe actually that, that young people are really looking for an answer and they don't want to be frustrated and they don't want to be hateful and mean but they, they're being pressed on all sides. And right now, the only people offering them an active voice are the wrong people, right? The Marxists are out there, prepared, ready, financed, able to do things. We need to, we need to get financed and offer an alternative to that. All right, Don D'Angelo, again, the book is The American Revolution. And if you're anywhere near San Diego, even if you're around here in L.A., be sure to connect with Don and uh, check out, even if you're not you know, in San Diego and want to be a member of that party, you can still roll down and uh, you know, attend some of their events and meet people. It's always good to connect with other libertarians in real life. Uh, as fun as it is to podcast and talk over Zoom, meeting people in real life and really connecting with them on the ground, as I've been able to do thanks to this podcast by attending uh, the LNC, by attending Porkfest, by attending events where you actually get to realize that these people are, are real human beings. They're not just bots on the internet. So, uh, Don, it was a pleasure meeting you in real life and a pleasure interviewing you you here today so i wish you the best of the luck with the book and the best of luck uh, with everything you got going on down there in san diego thanks so much mark it's great to see you again thanks don keep up the great work keep on roaring Peace. all right kitty cats i hope you enjoyed my conversation today with don d'angelo it is always great connecting with libertarians in real life like i was able to do in meeting don back in february at the libertarian party of california state convention what a different world it was back in february by the way i mean man it's just 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 thinking about back then and now is mind-blowing, but it's great to connect with Don. And thanks to the Lions of Liberty Pride, thanks to our supporters on Patreon, we are able to go to events, at least when it's normal to, 
times, at least pre-corona, and we are certainly hoping to do so again in 2021, uh, barring you know world events and what have you. But we're hoping to hit up some events that we weren't able to hit up this past year. Uh, so, of course, you can find more about how to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash lionsliberty. Join that pride. Get access to all sorts of exclusive bonus content. Next week, we'll be doing a live stream of our Nittany-level show. That's right. One of our $50 per month supporters gets to take over the show. We're going to be reviewing a little movie called The Conspiracy from a few years ago, and then we'll be doing a live Conspiracy Corner for our Pride Only for the Patreon. So it's very important to join up and get access to all these live streams, all this behind-the-scenes stuff that we got going on, because we make sure to provide plenty of bonus content for all of our patrons. Not only that, but all patrons get a 20% discount at the Lions of Liberty store, and we have a killer new shirt over there right now. It is the Taxation is Death t-shirt, so you can share with your friends and family just what the results of the taxation, the money that they are paying to the government every single year goes to, and that is raining death and destruction upon the world. So be sure to head over to lionsofliberty.store to check that puppy out, and if you join that pride, you will get 20% off your order. Friends, don't forget, it's not just me here on Lions of Liberty on the flagship show every single Monday where I bring you interviews with libertarians like Don D'Angelo today, sometimes movie reviews like we're doing next week, roundtables. It all happens here on the flagship before you hop over to Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture, and liberty on Electric Liberty Land, while Odie, John Odermatt, wraps things up every single Friday with his always hard-hitting and always inspiring look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday. You get all three podcasts for the price of one, my friends. That price is free. All you got to do is smash that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify, wherever it is you listen to the show. And don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a great review while you're over there. And drop us a question, by the way, do, because we are going to be sporadically diving into those reviews, looking for questions from our listeners and answering them on a public show uh, at some point. We did one about a month or two ago, and we'll probably be doing another one again pretty soon. And if that's not enough, if you just can't get enough of the Lions of Liberty here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, you can find us on some of our other projects. You can listen to myself and Remzo W. Martinez every single Wednesday on the Second Print Comics podcast, where we take a weekly look at the comic book stories, characters, events, and everything that have turned into the movies and TV shows that you love today. Uh, We really take a deep dive at the comics that inspired us as fans. I've been reading comics for 30 years. Remzo so not quite as long, uh, but we come in at things from different perspectives, and uh, we always have fun doing it. So please, if you're a comic fan at all, or even have thought about dipping your toe in the water, please do find the Second Print Comics Podcast. While you're doing that, if you want to hear more from Brian, Odie, and Rico, you can hear from them on Bravo and Beer. It's almost like a sequel nowadays, too. If you're a patron of our show, of course, those three also do the Degenerate Gamblers weekly podcast, and then they record Bravo and Beer right after that. So uh, it's almost like a one-two punch if you're in the Pride also, and then hopping over to Bravo and Beer for uh, not just a great talk about reality TV shows and all the all the garbage TV those guys are watching, but you get a lot of good stories in there, a lot of stuff about the Lions of Liberty, the kind of stories you also hear on Degenerate Gamblers available to our patrons. So just so much content out there for the Lions of Liberty. If you're fans of us in any way, shape, or form, you can probably just fill up your whole week with our content. But, you know, that might be a little too much. I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what to do, guys. But I am glad to have you here roaring with us every single Monday. And until next week, my friends, live long and live free.